morning's New Testament passage is from the book of John, which Darren will shortly preach on. So if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of John, and we're going to be reading from chapter 14, verse 25 to 31. So that's John chapter 14. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going now to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, brother, for reading God's Word to us, and um, for everyone being attentive when we began. I love the conversations that we're having, and it is good uh, that we get to have them um, and gather when we get to gather here. Um, you, do you know, this? the joy of having those conversations, they are available at, from quarter past nine here on Sunday morning. So it's crazy. So if you want to, you can come here at quarter past nine. Get 15 minutes of that joy and then come in ready to, to worship the Lord uh, for 9.30. That would warm my soul and warm your souls. Um, but it's good. We do love uh, being with one another and we hope that you'll stay around after the service and continue fellowshipping. Um, my name's Darren. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, one of the pastors here, and I'd love to pray uh, before we get into this morning's text. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Father, this morning we would pray that your true and good word that will remain forever will bring life to our hearts and our souls, comfort and challenge and encouragement. And we pray this in the risen name of Jesus. And all those who agreed said, amen. Well, preparing people for leaving is quite important. Preparing people for your leaving is quite important. Think through at work, you're going away for a four-week period, you have to have someone else from the office take over and fulfill your responsibilities. It's important that they know what to do to, in order to do that role. Or parents, think about your children. They're maybe you're, you're, you're leaving them for the, you're, you're going out for the first time and you're leaving your little, I don't know, six month old with a babysitter for the first time. Uh, and you've got to prepare the babysitter with a whole list of everything um, that needs to happen to make sure this child uh, stays alive. Preparing people for your leaving is important. Or sometimes this preparation is simple. Sometimes it actually has a profound impact. I think of the song by Johnny Cash, A Boy Named Sue, uh, where at the end of the song, the father explains why he named his son Sue. He said, son, this world is rough, and if a man's going to make it, he's got to be tough. 
I knew I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I gave you that name and I said goodbye and I knew you'd have to get tough or die. It's that name that helped you strong, helped make you strong. Well, fortunately, our boys are called Sue today. Um, they, they, would get, they would strengthen them up. But preparing people for your absence is quite important. That's essentially what Jesus has been doing here in the upper room with his disciples. He is about to go and he's wanting to leave them with his words that they might be prepared for his absence. How will Jesus prepare these disciples to follow him when he's no longer physically present? So far, he's let them know that he loves them the most and he'll show it through washing their feet. He's told them about where he's going and how they'll be able to get there. He's let them know what's about to happen, a betrayal, but who they'll be given, a helper, the Holy Spirit, and the work that they'll continue, announcing the gospel in word and deed. Discipleship is about following Jesus. The question I think this passage wants us to ask this morning is, how do you follow someone who's not physically around? How do we follow Jesus when he's not physically present? Four things I think in this passage that Jesus' words give us today. So we have his word, his peace, his glory, and his victory. Firstly, we have his word. We have the words of Jesus. When we read the Gospels, we might recall that Jesus' first words to many of his disciples was simple, follow me. Over the coming days and indeed the coming years, Jesus would say many more words, much more words than any person could possibly remember. Um, I'm not superb at recalling words and details of conversations that I've been in. My, My wife can testify to that. But these disciples wouldn't share my problem. In fact, we see here that they were were told by Jesus they would be given the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance Jesus' words. Look at verse 26 with me. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This must have been good news for the disciples to hear. They would be entrusted, after all, with passing on Jesus' teaching and making other disciples. And so you can't help but wonder if this, on this final night, as Jesus is saying words, whether they had that feeling that many of us would have had, like cramming for an exam the night before the test. Um, the, the, the teacher is saying what's important, so you're you know, ferociously writing everything down so you would, would pass the test when they're, not, when they're gone. Well, I'm not sure that would have helped these disciples too much, to be honest, because a lot of what Jesus has already said has gone over their heads. They simply haven't been able to put the pieces together yet. The Gospel of John's made that clear at different points, showing it was only afterwards that they started putting the pieces together. Well, since the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to be the one through whom the teaching ministry of Jesus will continue. The disciples won't be left empty-handed. The Spirit's arrival would be like pulling a light switch, so no longer leaving the disciples in the dark, but rather helping them now make sense of Jesus' words. They would apply Jesus' words and probably understand them and interpret them. That's the the teaching of all things. And we aren't to think the teaching of all things is teaching all things that there is possibly to know, but rather teaching all that pertains to salvation and godliness. This is the key role of the Spirit that which is sufficient to live faithfully 
for Jesus. Now here, I think it is important to recognize that this is first a promise to these disciples before it is an application to us. It's a promise to these disciples first because they had a unique role in recalling and recording Jesus' words, which, which we get to have here in the Holy Scriptures. So that's different to us today. We don't have that kind of specific role of new revelation. But what this means, though, is when we ask the question, how can I trust what the Bible says? In Jesus' own words here, He is saying, you can have assurance that what you read is true because the same Spirit is inside these disciples accurately recalling my words. They will speak what I have said to them. They will continue on the teaching ministry. As the Son came in the Father's name, so shall the Father send the Spirit in my name, says Jesus. That is, with the same divine power and authority to reproduce Christ's teachings in their heart. Have confidence in what we read today. They might not see Jesus much longer, but they will know His voice through the Spirit. We may not see Jesus physically today, but we can hear His voice through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, how does that work? Well, through God's Word. Through God's Word. I was talking with Nathan earlier in the week and he's sharing a, an illustration example about a, a father sleeping in the, the room of children who were a bit um, unsettled and a bit scared. And the, the, it's nighttime and so it's dark. And when a child would cry out or stir, Father's voice would come. It's okay. You're safe. You can go back to sleep. That's how God, in one sense, works today through His Word. Comforting. It's okay. You're safe. You can carry on. More than just words of comfort, be words of exhortation and teaching. Keep my commands. Don't do this. Keep going here. We may not see Him, but we can hear him through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we want to go to God's word. We believe that God is not silent, but that he is speaking, and we have the clearest revelation here in Holy Scriptures of who God is. Let us go to it. If we're going to follow Jesus in his physical absence, we've got his word. At work, facing a difficult task, over dinner, seeking to encourage one another, At a church on a Sunday morning, seek to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Seek to have Scripture brought to our minds. We can follow Jesus by following His Word. Secondly, Jesus is going to give the disciples not just His words, but His peace. Now, Jesus isn't changing topic here. So don't think that Jesus is giving random, disconnected topics. I think there's a continuity here. One of the implications of having the Holy Spirit in their life is that they would be given peace. They would experience peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Notice the kind of peace that is given. It says it's characterized by Jesus' peace, not the peace the world gives. It's important. I think Jesus here is doing a bit of brand comparison. He's, he's, he's holding up the I was going to say the Aldi brand, but Aldi is a good product. They have good products these days. Showing the home brand, the kind of lesser one, to the, you know, to Sirena tuna compared to home brand tuna. If you ever tasted Sirena tuna, you can't go back to home brand tuna. There's something qualitatively different 
about the peace that Jesus gives his disciples that is different to what the world offers. This is good. Disciples are particularly troubled. Jesus, their master, is about to leave them. One of them, they've been told, is about to betray them. And that's a problematic situation for them. The way the world offers peace is by having the circumstances in your life go well. Good circumstances, good peace. The only problem is the circumstances for these disciples seem to be going what? Rather bad, rather poorly. They can't avoid what's about to happen. So how on earth are they going to experience peace? Well, you you get peace by taking away trouble, don't you? Think about take away the trouble of boredom with Netflix and entertainment. Take away financial trouble by having a saving account or nice investments. Take away loneliness trouble through relationships. Take away anxiety trouble through addiction and media attachment. Take away insignificant trouble through promotion, career progression. Whatever the thing is troubling you, simply take it away and you'll have peace. That's the way the world offers it. Well, disciples can't take it away. Well, maybe if they can't take it away, maybe they can take the trouble out through a demonstration of force or power. In New Testament times, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was won and maintained by force. This is perhaps what spurred Peter on to to raise his sword, to take back when Jesus is about to get arrested. But the disciples, let's be honest, they're no match for the force, the governing authorities, the religious authorities. So what peace can the world offer them in that moment? Well, sadly, the way the world is going to offer, they don't have much to offer. Only thing left, really, is the world to extend a kind of good luck. She'll be right. A kind of peace that says, all the best. I understand you're going through a terrible time, but hey, things will be better soon. It's an empty kind of promise. Trouble finds us all. And simple solutions for peace, well, they feel empty. I think this is epitomized, the the world's plan in producing peace. It was epitomized in a 2017 Pepsi commercial that was subsequently canceled. It starred Kendall Kardashian. The ad begins with these protesters gathering together to rally, to a march for peace. And there's artists, there's music, um, some playing music, some painting, and they're all watching this, this kind of moment take place. And Pepsi cans are beautifully, beautifully displayed. Kendall, doing a photo shoot, sees this rally take place and thinks, out of the good of her heart, she ought to join. Uh, a, a, a wayward traveler simply gives her a smile of invitation, says, you should come. And she's, of course I should come. So Kendall joins the protest. And what does she do? She sees an unopened can of Pepsi perfectly placed. She grabs this can, walks up to the now line of police enforcement officers, hands him the Pepsi can. He takes the can, he opens it, he takes a sip. Everyone cheers. Everyone celebrates. High fives are being loaded. The the police officer looks to his friend and smiles, the other police officer. This is amazing. Peace has been achieved. Reconciliation has happened. Unity has been accomplished through the giving of Pepsi, the giver of peace. The ad received backlash. Not surprisingly, with one of my favorite comments being, 
Can't believe Kendall Jenner just solved institutionalized racism and oppression by giving a cop a can of Pepsi. Groundbreaking. Well, I think this ad taps into something um, about the kind of novel or, or wishful thinking of the kind of peace the world just wants to offer you. It could be as simple as that. Well, if only it was that simple. See, even if wars cease, people become friends again. Won't be too long before our internal hearts are troubled. Won't be too long before desires rage within. Anger, rebellion stirs up. See, until there is peace with God vertically, there will not be peace with ourselves internally or peace with one another horizontally. Jesus is saying to his disciples, though, he says, I'm going to give you my peace. So what is this peace? If it's not a peace that's determined on circumstances, and if it's not a peace that is empty and wishful, what is this peace? Well, ultimately, this is a peace, is no less than reconciliation with God himself. See, peace in the Bible is about being in right relationship with God, having the blessings, experiencing the blessings of being in that right relationship with God. As, as Jesus leaves for the cross, he, he'll leave them his peace so that their guilt is gone, that their future is secure, that their love of God is shown and known and certain, that Christ has not abandoned them. The Spirit will make these truths alive in their hearts, and it is not dependent on circumstances. In fact, you can have the peace of God in spite of bad circumstances. To have this peace is to receive Jesus at his word. The inner peace the world seeks, Jesus wants to offer. But the problem is, in each person's heart, there is a rebellion against their Creator. Spurgeon rightly points out that the Lord cannot be at peace with you while you defy His law. He declares that you are guilty, and since you dispute this declaration, hence between you and Him, there is a quarrel which never has ended until you own your error and beg for pardon. That's the problem, do you see? Until there's peace inside here, there will not be peace out here in the world. You see, it's Jesus' leaving of the disciples as he's heading to the cross that is most troubling for them. Interestingly, it's the fact that Jesus is going to obtain peace on the cross for them that they aren't yet quite figuring out. Jesus brings peace not by taking trouble away, but rather by entering it. He secures peace, not by force, but rather by laying down his life, by subjecting himself to suffering and loss. John 16, 33 says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart in that tribulation. I have overcome the world. He overcomes through laying down his life. He offers this peace to their disciples. And indeed, any person here today that wants to be in restored relationship with God, Christ offers you His peace. Are you looking for peace this morning? Are you looking for something to settle your restless heart? Have the busyness and the toing and the throwing of life, the frantic pace, the stimulation, is it bringing you the peace you're after? Do you need the circumstances in your world to be all lined up? Then you will have peace. Or have you known the joy and peace of Christ 
There might be a hurricane going on, but you can be on the cliffs obey with the Spirit, trusting in Him, experiencing His peace. He gives peace to troubled hearts that need not be afraid. Thirdly then, look at this glory that He leaves. So verse 28, I think, in, if you look at verse 28, it's, 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 quite, it's quite profound. It says, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. It's, I, just, I feel like if this was moments where people, Jesus has just said this to them and Jesus is now mentioned again, oh, you've heard me say, I'm, hey, the, the, the Spirit's going to remember things I tell you. And here's like a little practice run. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. Jesus still feels in this moment he needs to remind them of something he's only just said moments ago. Now, why is he repeating this to them? Why is he repeating himself again in this conversation? I think he's repeating himself in this conversation to them because this announcement of Jesus going away to be with the Father was an opportunity of love. It was an opportunity of love. Upon hearing that someone is going, if the destination they're going to is better than the place where they are, that's an opportunity to celebrate with them. I had a friend of mine, Dan, um, we were pastoring together in Brisbane, and he headed overseas to Oxford to study. In that moment, by the grace of God, it was amazing because he gets this opportunity to go and study, but this means he's going to be away from us. I don't know if he's coming back. It's sorrow, but... When your eyes are fixed on the joy of where they're going, well, this was a great opportunity. I could rejoice indeed. See, look what Jesus says about their love and notice that their love was actually deficient. Verse 28, he goes on to say, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and for the Father is greater than I. So there is a kind of glory that awaits Jesus in heaven when he returns to be with the Father. And if we properly understood that glory that is Jesus when he ascends and returns to the Father, then that would produce joy in the hearts of the disciples. Not trouble. And it would have been an expression of love for Jesus. Yet they're filled with sorrow. They're filled with trouble. Sometimes taking the news of a loved one leaving can and I take a bit of time to process. But if hearts are properly fixed on God rather than themselves, they would have been given the joy and the comfort that they are now seeking in this moment. Their hearts probably aren't far from ours, distracted, divided, not sure where to fix our gaze on, overwhelmed by our troubles and our present circumstances. I think Jesus is exposing these disciples where their hearts are at. If you've ever seen those military reunion videos on YouTube, um, you'll know the joy of being reunited with loved ones. If you want to have a good tearjerker this afternoon, just YouTube military reunion videos. And if that doesn't, that doesn't do it for you, military reunion dog videos. That one will probably get it for you. Interestingly, there's no military reunion cat videos. Is I think cats would just be like, about time you returned. Where have you been? Yeah. If you watch those videos, you, you can't help but, 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 
and I did last night. It was a, it was a, it was a beautifully awful, you know, it's just awful but lovely. It's just it all happening. But if you watch those videos, the joy of being back with a loved one. I think the depth of relationship and the time you've been away is the joy of that reunion. Well, well think about Jesus here. It's, it's, it's not simply that it's a reunion, although it is. And it's not simply that Jesus is getting the whole band back together and trying and God's going to be reunited in glory again in, in, in the heavens. But Jesus is returning to this sphere of glory. There's something that's so incredible about this. Think about this. So Jesus, before he came to earth, he enjoyed from eternity past with the Father and the Spirit joy. No moment was ever spent away from it. Fullness, the co-relationship with the Father was of the deepest union possible. Full alignment, desire, affection, will, no gap in love for all eternity past. Then he came to earth. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, came as a human baby, mouth and limbs and eyes, a body that needed to be fed and clothed. He lived amongst his very creation, no longer at the Father's side, but Jesus would be cast aside by the creation. For 30-something years, he had not returned to be with the Father. Whilst he communed with him and retained perfect unity with him, he was still earthbound. But friends, he would return home soon the loving embrace of the Father and the Son as He ascended into heaven, the divine welcome home from the Father, the Son by the Father's right hand side. Friends, can you picture this reunion for a moment? Can you lift your eyes towards heaven and see the the union of the Son getting back in the Father's arms? What glory, what splendor. No wonder Jesus can say the words, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. If you knew what this was, you would be thrilled. Father is greater than I. Jesus is returning to the more immediate experience of the Father's glory. Jesus being near the Father is of greater joy than Jesus being physically far from the disciples. Now, regarding that phrase, for the Father is greater than I, we need not get tripped up on it. Firstly, we can understand that on the backdrop of Jesus' own words in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So this is not greater in terms of essence or being, as if Jesus is less divine than the Father, or as if Jesus is, has, is less glorious than the Father in deity. Rather, the Father is greater here because of the present incarnation of the Son. You might recall Jesus' own words that a messenger is not greater than the one who sends him. Jesus is the sent one from the Father here in human form. And he's looking forward to returning to the Father who sent him, where he will return to all his former glory and greatness. Something Jesus is going to pray himself in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in this, he hoped his disciples would rejoice. Truth is, they're more occupied with their own issues. They're more occupied with their own dilemmas. 
and they really should have been focusing here on the glory of the Father. Their minds are fixated on what Jesus' absence means for them without considering what Jesus' return means for him. By implication, I think we should ask the question, where should we locate our glory this morning? And where should we locate our joy? Should our kind of life's goal and aim not be fixated and pointed and directed towards the Father's glory? Should our joy not be aimed at finding joy in what Jesus finds enjoying? Not located in the joys of the world alone or riding the the waves of circumstances, but in the glory of the Father, the kind of glory of submitting to the plans and purposes of Jesus. You know what the disciples' plans and purposes was? Their plans and purposes was, Jesus, how about you stay here with us and we get this Jesus movement going and, and you be the Messiah to physically deliver us from all our Roman oppression. That'll bring us joy. That'll bring us peace. That's our plan. What are your thoughts? Jesus says, I've got other plans. I'm headed to the Father. I think Jesus is in effect saying, you're thinking too much about yourselves and too little about my glory. Loving me looks like glorifying the Father. Friends, this morning, this takes trust. Don't let me minimize the trouble they're experiencing. This takes trust. You and I need to walk in faith to believe that is what is good for Jesus is good for us. And that is the lens through which we ought to approach every decision in life. What is good for Jesus is good for us. What is good and glorifying to the Father must be for my joy and good, even if I'm struggling to see it. This isn't about being too hard on the disciples. It's simply about learning from them. Our following Jesus now ought to be characterized by the question, what does Jesus find most glorifying? Have you asked that question this past week? As you spend time at work, what does Jesus find most glorifying here? As you engage in a conflict with a loved one, what does Jesus find most glorifying here? As you planned out your schedule, as you spent your money, what does Jesus find most glorifying here? That's the question Jesus wants. Because what's most glorifying to Jesus is most loving to Jesus. They're on the same path. A period in prayer captured this thought well, I think. He said, Heavenly Father, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty, make my heart prize your love. Know it, be constrained by it, though I be denied all blessings. Let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, temptations, if I thereby feel sin as the greatest evil and be delivered from it with gratitude to you, acknowledging this as the highest testimony of your love. When your son Jesus came into my soul instead of sin, he became more dear to me than sin had formerly been. His kindly rule replaced sin's tyranny. That's the effect of a heart captured by the glory of the Father, captured by the love of Jesus, experiencing the joy of Jesus. You ought to rejoice because I'm going to the Father, Jesus says. I wonder if you can see in all this how Jesus is trying to help his disciples' faith remain stable. Remain stable. Think about it. Stability in life, you need to know what to do, instructions. You need to have kind of, some kind of assurance that's going to work out in the end. Peace. 
and you need to have something to kind of aim for, or in this case, the glory. Jesus is giving those things to his disciples. He says, you're not trying to build something without instructions. I'll give you my word. Trouble's going to come your way. I'm going to give you my peace. And as you fix that on my glory, I'm going to give you my joy. Do you see how we can follow Jesus even when he's not physically present? Jesus is trying to firm up the disciples' faith. The tremors and the trials of the coming hours and days is going to shake the very foundations of these disciples' faith. Jesus is trying to prepare them for it. Jesus told them this before it takes place, verse 29, so that when it does take place, they may believe. He, he's firming up their faith by giving them a heads up. By predicting what's coming, Jesus is also showing what? That he's in control. You can, you can predict the future, you're in control. Your life is not happenstance, it is not a mistake, you are not like a plastic bag blown in the wind by the circumstances of life. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's in control and he's reminding his disciples of this. And I think what's happening in this upper room is, is it, Jesus is kind of practicing with them now what they're going to need to practice after he's gone. When they experience trouble in the upper room, Jesus brings his words of encouragement to bear upon their lives and exhorts them to believe in God. When the disciples are going to be troubled after Jesus' departure, they are to put into practice the words of Jesus and so be able to remain steadfast. This upper room is like a practice run for them. Jesus is trying to produce in them, bolster their faith. Friends, today when troubling situations produces in us troubling hearts, we are to believe in God. We are to hold on to faith, take Him at His word. I think all this links to Jesus' final words here. Look, fourthly then, following Jesus by walking in Jesus' victory. By following Jesus, by walking in Jesus' victory. This is in verse 30. Now, um, I don't know if there's any Avengers fans uh, in the room. Uh, there are a couple in our office. Um, the captain is Sam. Um, I don't know who's second or third. Um, Sam's winning. Sam's definitely winning in the, the love for Avengers. But if you, if you haven't seen Avengers, um, any of them, because there's a few of them, it's all particularly now about Infinity War. If you haven't seen it, you've had four years, it's on you. Um, in Infinity War, well, the Avengers are trying to defeat Thanos. He's a bad guy. Um, and maybe he's upset because he's purple. But he has an Infinity Amulet. Um, not a glove, oh, it's actually, I don't know what it's called actually. I wrote the wrong word down and I had to correct it on Google because I'm clearly not the captain of Marvel. So he has this, this, this glove, someone could correct me later, please forgive me. And his infinity stones go on the glove and this gives him extreme power, so much power that with a click of his fingers, he can wipe out half the population of the whole universe. This is his sustainability program. Um, that's essentially what it is. He would get lots of votes on the left uh, if he was running for office today. So Thanos comes in and um, there's this moment before this happens where Doctor Strange is speaking to Tony Stark and he says to him after everyone's disappearing because they've, they've been clicked away, he says to Tony, his words, looks him in the eye and he says, Tony, there was no other way. Dr. Strange, his ability to kind of see out the, the future possibilities in the future. And he says, Tony, there's no other way before he dusts into oblivion. If you watch part two, they, most of them come back. I think all, they all come back. I'm not sure. A lot of them come back. It's a great joy. Um, you should really see it. It's very uplifting. So in this, um, 
there's a loss, a significant loss. And if you were in the cinema watching it, there was like a, a collective groaning as these characters you've watched and grown attached to in the last few years are disappearing before your eyes. There's a loss. But it's all part of the, the setup for the victory, isn't it? This was the only way. We, we have something similar happening here with Jesus heading to the cross. It's, it's going to look like a victory for the enemy and a defeat for God. And yet, like in chess, sometimes you need to sacrifice the most important piece, the queen, in order to get the move, the checkmate. You see, right in this moment, the ruler of this world is coming for Jesus. We know earlier that the ruler of this world, Satan, has already infiltrated Judas. Judas has gone out, and by all accounts, Judas is returning. The ruler of this world in Judas is coming. Satan's coming for him. It might look like a loss. Look at verse 30 and 31. I will no longer much talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, what we don't want to do here is minimize the fact that the ruler of this world is coming. He really is coming. He really will impact the events before us. Tim Chalice elaborates, he says, the, the ruler of this world will drag Jesus like a helpless, hopeless lamb through the streets, through the courts and to the cross where he would be tortured and nailed and pierced in utter agony. Satan was going to do his worst. But Satan would not accomplish what he had hoped. So we stop there for a moment. Why won't Satan accomplish what he'd hoped? He wants to kill him. He's killed him. Why hasn't that accomplished what he hoped? Well, it's because of these profound six words. You hear what Jesus says? He has no claim on me. Satan's plan would have an effect, but it wouldn't have the desires, desired impact that he attended. His bringing Jesus to that cross would be the vehicle through which Jesus would bring salvation to the world. Satan could do nothing beyond the physical, for he had no claim on Jesus. He had no claim on the Son of God. So the rule of this world, Satan, in the Bible, he's referred to as the accuser, and for that is what he does. He, he accuses people before God, kind of whispering in their ear, as it were, so that they would be aware, because of their sin, that they are unloving and unworthy, they are unredeemable, their sinful plight makes them beyond reach, he accuses. His claim would hold up to our human hearts if it were not for Christ, right? Without Christ... The ruler of this world has a claim on every one of us. We've given him a lot of material to work with. We have rebelled. And that's how he gets his hook in us, in people, by holding on to their sins. However, he has no claim on Jesus. He can't stake and say that that is his. There is no sin to point to. There is, there is no guilt in him that the Satan can bind. There's no offense to bring up or to show that, that, that Jesus is unloving or unworthy. Satan is powerless in accusing Jesus, since Jesus is perfectly obedient. There's nowhere for him for the hooks to sink in. There are no cracks or chinks in his armor. He can't get in. Satan cannot divert or exert any force on Jesus. 
outside that which of Jesus and God have already preordained. Yes, the rule of this world is coming, but friends, he has no claim on him. This means the decisive factor on why Jesus died on Calvary wasn't misfortune. It wasn't a mistake. It was Jesus doing as the Father commanded him. Jesus didn't go to the cross because Satan came for him. Jesus went to the cross as the Father commanded him. In perfect unity, in perfect agreement, Jesus fulfills the work of the Father set out for him. Judas may be coming, but Jesus is going because of Jesus' love for the Father. That's what leads him to the cross. Friends, this night is, is shrouded in darkness. This night is ominous, but it is a night that is also shrouded in love. Love for the Father, Jesus heading to the cross. You know, it would be often common for us to think about the cross primarily as God showing his love for the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Or God's love for his special love for believers. And there certainly is those things. But you know this verse, is, you know the camera angle this verse is coming at? Something less thought about. Something actually more foundational than, than God's love of the world is actually the love between the Father and the Son. For Jesus, this was an act of loving obedience to the Father, not an unfortunate defeat by Satan. That's what's being displayed. This is what lifts us up, just even out of ourselves, out of our own self-love. We actually swept up into the love of the Trinity, drawn into something bigger than you and me, that God's infinite and perfect love is showing and revealing itself on the cross. Jesus is going. Jesus is obeying the Father. Jesus is loving the Father. When we wonder, do we have to walk in obedience? Is obedience loving? Look at Jesus heading to the Father. Love and obedience are aligned. The same path for us. Friends, I think this is a reminder that everything does not revolve around us, but revolves most fundamentally around God. He's going to the cross, not because primarily for you and me. He's going because of the love of the Father to bring about a way for forgiveness that God could be reconciled to his people. He wants the world to get it. Today, people, you might ask at your workplace, what's the point of the cross? You might ask at your university, what do you make of Jesus? You have friends or family who don't follow him. What do you make of the cross? What do you make of why Jesus went? Is it a fable about a guy who died? Or is it a myth just about some guy who got crucified? Or here in this text, is it an account of love between father and son? Or creating a pathway for reconciliation and redemption? Now, the good news that Jesus, the state doesn't have a claim on Jesus is that because you and I are united to Jesus, it means what? Satan has no claim on us. You see, as Satan's plans unfold with Jesus being pinned on the cross, God's plans were unfolding to bring about salvation. As the sins of the world were laid upon Jesus, the wrath of God, holy wrath of God against sin was laid upon the Son. He atoned for our sins in our place in a way that now allows him to lay claim on our lives, to call us his own, to call us his children. We belong to him now. We have his righteousness. So the accuser has lost his claim. His claims cannot be substantiated. He will still accuse. 
He will, some, he will still come and bring your sins before you. And the weakest of Christian and the frailest of Christian and the struggling Christian and the most troubled Christian and the most defeated Christian can invite Satan to take it up with Jesus. For he is our advocate. There is no claim here that sin has been dealt with. You have no more authority in my life, Satan. Satan has no claim on Jesus, and as we united with him, he has no claim on us. The passage finishes with these words, rise, let us go from here. I think this phrase simply marks Jesus' intended departure from their location. And if you think about it for a moment, I think it's, there's something pretty cool about what's happening here. I say that in trying to catch the gravity of it. Jesus just said, Satan's coming. It's kind of like the schoolyard bully is coming for you. Jesus won't be going down on their terms. He says, rise, let's go out and meet him. Jesus won't be moved by external forces. He's not contingent upon the movements of Satan. He's walking out his plans on his timeline. And he says, let us go from here. The disciples are on board now. Jesus has told them their part. Jesus has let them know what he's going to do. And he says, rise now. Let us go from this place. So where does this leave us this morning? How do we follow Jesus when he's not physically around? Well, we can know that we've heard this morning, since God in his mercy has preserved it for us, we have his word. Jesus isn't inviting you to have a guesswork of how to follow him. He's giving you his word. With the power of the Holy Spirit, you can understand wonderful truths from Scripture and so as to hear the voice of God today. We, like the disciples, may recognize where our love has been deficient towards Jesus. And so this morning there is an invitation to recalibrate what is most glorious and by implication to receive that which is most joyful for us. Would we freely confess this morning and so return our gaze to Christ's glory, not our own? Secondly, some of us may realize this morning that we're trying to receive peace as the world gives through ordering circumstances to line up the way we want. Jesus is offering us something far better. If we let our hearts that are void of peace seek the world's peace, we're going to end up with destructive behaviors. When the joy of Jesus won't inhabit us, the trappings of the world will. What Jesus wants is your restless heart this morning. If he wants your troubled heart, come to him, bring it. Bring your troubles to him. If peace is got on offer, come and receive it. A settled relationship with Jesus, the offer of a settled heart despite circumstances. So we can say with the psalmist, for the righteous will never be moved. He will, never, he will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. So come to him. Receive the peace he offers. And in so doing, may we walk in faith, knowing that our union is with Jesus, that he has secured our victory, and that just as certain as it is that Satan can lay no claim on Jesus, he can no, lay no claim on us. Let the Spirit remind you of Scripture that points to the beauty of the cross and the love between the Godhead that we now get to share in, that we have an intercessor in the right hand of the Father who's covered our sins and our guilt forevermore. How do we follow Jesus? 
when he's not physically present. We follow him by receiving his word, receiving his peace, and focusing on his glory and his victory. Let us pray.